from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Seamus. Well, I guess I'm the only one here today, so, but I am here with Karen Whitaker. Karen is the deputy director of the League of American Bicyclists, and she has some information to share with us today. So Karen Whitaker, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks. Great to be here. What's going on in Washington, D.C.? Well, there's a lot going on. You know, we've heard a lot from this administration and from Secretary Buttigieg about safety. Right. And we're seeing a lot of things happen on the federal highway side and the transit side. But there's this other agency within USDOT, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that's in charge of car standards and safety Mm -hmm. standards. And they just have continued from past administrations to this one to just sort of ignore and minimize bicyclist fatalities. And we're really trying to work to change it. One of the things we, we just found out recently is that back in 2018 or 2019, they, the USDOT commissioned a study on pedestrians and large truck crashes. And they found this data showing that if you put side guards on a truck, which is basically you know, a, um, material in between the two wheels, that can keep a bicyclist or a pedestrian from sliding under and getting crushed by the rear wheels. And we know that in a lot of crashes, it's not actually the impact with the truck. It's that sliding under the wheel that kills people. Right. So So, that's as the truck turns, it would hit someone in its side and drag them under the truck. Yeah. A lot of it happens when there's an impact on the side. Sometimes when the truck goes by you so fast, there's wind that pushes you out. And then there's almost a vacuum under the truck that pulls you in. And so sometimes cyclists will just lose a little control. And if there was material there, it would push you, it would sweep you out of the way. You might still crash, but you wouldn't get crashed. Right. Dan Langenkamp was on our show recently with with Representative Earl Blumenhauer speaking about his wife, Sarah, who was a U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. She worked for the State Department for 17 years, and she comes back home to Washington, D.C., and she's riding her bike in Bethesda. And it sounds like this is the same kind of crash that you're talking about, that these side guardrails would have prevented or could have prevented Sarah being killed. Yeah. They definitely may have. I mean, there is a number of things that went wrong in that crash. And if just one of them or two of them had gone right, Sarah could still be alive today. And that's just one of the tragedies. And when we know these things, when we know we have these data, that if you have a side underride guard, you're going to save lives. It's crazy that we don't. And that same report I was just talking about, when they had the data in you know, 2019 or so, there was just reporting in ProPublica and on Frontline that they gave that data to the trucking industry, which edited out all that. It edited out any reference to a regulation. It edited, it edited out that these side guards could save lives and reduce injuries of bicyclists and pedestrians in these crashes. And wait, wait the, the governmental department allowed the trucking industry to edit out the information that would make their trucks safer and save lives on our streets? Yeah, the ProPublica has um, the emails discussing it, and they have the the before and after of that report. 
Wow. I, I, I feel like that opens it up for a huge lawsuit, which I think we have to start now because sometimes that's the only way to get some of these things taken care of. Is it hugely expensive to add a side guard on a truck, on a semi-truck? It costs a couple thousand dollars. And per, that's per truck. Right. Per truck. And actually right now, um, because of the infrastructure bill, the infrastructure bill, Congress told um, this agency, NHTSA, the Traffic Safety Administration, hey, we want you to look at whether or not it makes sense to have a regulation. Right. And so NHTSA did this whole cost-benefit analysis, and they said, no, it's not worth the cost. It's too expensive to put them on. Yeah. But when that, they were- that, That's looking, what Carr said about seatbelts, right? Right. And when they were doing that cost-benefit on that, they didn't include vulnerable road users. They didn't include bicyclists, pedestrians, or motorcyclists. Right. And they used only very limited car crashes to get that data. Right. And so right now- is an opportunity to put in comments to USDOT to say, hey, that cost benefit doesn't work. You need to include bicyclists and pedestrians and motorcyclists. So at bikeleague.org, we have, a, we have an action alert where you can take action because you know we just need to be counted. Even Absolutely. if in the end they say the regulation doesn't matter, our lives still count. There's still a benefit to saving those bicyclists and pedestrians. Right in these right. cases. And this is what I mean by saying that NHTSA just minimizes bicyclists' lives. They don't include right. us in a lot of these things. But the thing about the side guards, even if they put in a rule, it would require new trucks to be built with them. So it's a lot cheaper to add something when the truck is new than to retrofit. Sure, sure. So it's not requiring every truck to go back and get it now. It's, it's starting to move it through. Great. And with the side guards that are specific to bicyclists and pedestrians, we're already seeing, I think there's already 10 cities that have done it in the U.S. The state of Massachusetts is the first state to do it because they've seen the difference. In, right. in New York, 32% of bicyclist fatalities are with large trucks. In San oh, Francisco, wow. it's 17%. So that's wow. one in five. Right. In Massachusetts as a state, it's, it's over 40%. Wow. And so, and trucks only make up 4% of the vehicles on the road. Wow. Well, Karen Whitaker, thank you for your information and for your work. I wonder, before you leave, I don't think we've had someone from the League of American Bicyclists on the show in a while. I wonder if you could give just give our audience a quick update of what the League does and how they might be able to join. The mission of the League is to build a bicycle-friendly America for everyone. And the way we do that is we work with communities, businesses, and universities to be bicycle-friendly, and then we certify them. So that's sort of our flagship program. We also do bike education, where we train people to become certified instructors, and then they can use our materials and get our insurance. And those instructors teach 50 to 60,000 people a year. And then, of course, we do the policy advocacy, particularly at the federal level, on everything for more money for bike lanes and trails to better policy, and also helping out at the state and local level. Life is better for everyone when more people ride bikes. I totally agree. Yeah. So it's bikeleague.org. Oh, great. Thank you very much. Karen Whitaker, thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thank you. Thanks. It was great to have Karen Whitaker on from the League of American Bicyclists. And, you know, now I see that you guys have joined me. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Nick. 
Hi, Taylor. Hi, Nick. Hi, Seamus. Howdy. Everybody. Anything in the news, Lindsay? Congestion pricing passed yeah, in baby. New York. Big news. I'm very excited personally. It just shows you what we can do when we are together as a unit, right? <laughs> they call it the all-powerful bike advocates. <laughs> when we come together, we really can move things forward. And we have so many groups fighting the same fight. And sometimes I wish we'd all really just, you know, come together and and sort of, you know, take this on. Uh, in unison. Bike Talk hosted a forum where we invited many of the different groups that are all fighting for the same cause, but sometimes coming from slightly different vantage points. Uh, we, we hosted a forum at Eco Village, which is in Los Angeles. It's spawned Ciclavia, the Bicycle Kitchen, the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. Bike Talk was sort of birthed there also. So it was really a great place to have this forum. We invited Eli Kaufman, the director of Bike LA, John Yee of LA Walks, Jimmy Lazama of the Bicycle Kitchen, Josh Cohen, who's a, a bicycle attorney. And we all got the chance to talk a little bit about where the bicycle advocacy movement has come from in the last 30 years, where it is today and where it's going. It was interesting just to be at the Eco Village. It was the first time I had been there and we're sitting there on the, the old red line tracks talking about, you know, the past and the future um, in this sort of wild place where you get to see the history, literally the, the infrastructure history of Los Angeles right. there. At the tracks are right there. I love that you bring that up because mobility is a system. It's all connected. You you can't just have like one good bus line. You need you need a, a integrated transportation, you know, transit, bikes, and walkability. As we advocate for bikes, advocating for transit really is also advocating for bikes. Yeah, we gave Lois Arkin the uh, Lifetime uh, Supporting Advocacy Award, and it, it we've been talking about giving an award regionally. Detroit, Massachusetts, Los Angeles, to the advocate who's really accomplishing their goals, our goals. Right, right. I think it's really wonderful that all these nexuses of bike advocacy are now talking. Totally. It's huge. So we're going to hear some clips from our forum over the weekend. We're going to start with a clip of where the bicycle advocacy movement has come from in the last 30 years. So let's go to that. So my name is John Yee. I'm also the executive director for Los Angeles Walk. So I'm a bit of a novelty here. I'm a pedestrian advocate, but I feel a lot of things that we go through, struggle with, with the built environment, transportation, dignity on our streets, are very similar to what I think bicyclists go through. So happy to show my perspective. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Eli Akira Kaufman. And um, as Nick shared, I'm the executive director of Bike LA, formerly LACBC. So it's nice to see so many familiar faces. I, I've been in the role for about five years. I've been a member of LACBC for about 10, or Bike LA for about 10. And um, I'm just really interested in the intersection between affordable housing and transportation justice. Um, and really excited to hear about what your interests are and where, what's keeping you up at night and what your hopes are for the future of LA. Hi everybody, my name is Josh Cohen. Uh, I am a personal injury attorney and I specialize in representing injured, vulnerable road users. I have a background in environmental law. I'm primarily interested in what I do because I think that we need to get cars off the road and we need to get people moving safely without cars. LA is the epicenter of that entire tension and uh, I've been involved in several nonprofits dedicated to 
promoting those uh, issues, and uh, I'm honored to be here. My name is Jimmy Lazama, and uh, I just want to thank everybody for putting this together. Um, I won't go too far into the history, but I've been doing the bike thing for a very long time. I'm also a resident of this specific neighborhood here. I went to Virgil Middle School, I went to Belmont High School, uh, and my, my dad had a car growing up, like he, he drove a lot, but one of his primary ways of getting around going to work was bicycle. Uh, so I think early on for me, it was very instilled that bicycle was a way to have um, good, cheap transportation. Um, I myself never owned a car. Uh, I've, I've had a license for a little bit and used it one or twice, but that was as far as that went. But I've been able to live my life entirely here in LA um, without a car, and it's been kind of wonderful. Uh, I think it's been it's been wonderful because I haven't had a car, and my consciousness has been really specific around walking, biking, uh, and public transportation always. Uh, and I got to say that I, I feel, as someone like that, that I've got actually more access to uh, to the goodness of life in our city. Actually, so I, I forgot to say one thing is that I, I do wish Adonia was here. Uh, Adonia Lugo, who's done a lot of good work in the city around equity, around transportation. Uh, and, I, and I bring it up because uh, women have been a big part of the bicycle movement in LA. And that, that strong voice is really needed in all of our spaces, whether it's bicycles or anywhere else. So uh, in spirit, I, you know, definitely holding something here for, for Adonia, so. Eco Village started in 93, co-founded by Lois. What has happened in bike advocacy in that time, in 30 years? Were you active in 93? <laughs> I, was, I was walking home um, in 93 because uh, civil unrest uh, um, ha was, was happening in our city. And so Rodney King was very much a, a huge reality. And so that was kind of like the consciousness. But even, even then, yeah, we're, we were biking, we were walking, so. Yeah. yeah, and I remember you in the kitchen when the bike kitchen was in the kitchen. <laughs> The, the question is, how has bike advocacy, from what you know, you're all very well informed, uh, changed and evolved in those 30 years? There's, there's, a, few, there's a few things that maybe don't, are, aren't always connected. There's uh, unsung heroes on many levels uh, in our city around the bicycle thing. And I'll start with my dad. My, my dad uh, biked from Koreatown to Beverly Hills uh, for like a good part of 20 years on his bicycle at 4.30 in the morning to be working at 5.30 in the morning. Right, my dad's story is that story of a lot of people here in this city, a lot of uh, immigrant riders, a lot of day laborers who just get around by bicycle and they're out there super early, super late, putting a lot of miles in, but they're not seen as a bicycle community in a sense, but they're the ones who are riding before anybody else is calling it advocacy, before anybody else is calling it transportation, they were actually doing it. Uh, there's also communities that we don't totally acknowledge um, that were also busy, South LA, East LA, the valley, these are vast places where we don't connect the dots to the history of the bicycle movement because we didn't have everybody under a ribbon that said advocacy at that point. Um, in fact, there's a good article called Invisible Riders that was put out by uh, one of the old bicycle kitchen cooks, Aaron Salinger, and Dan Copel from Bicycling Magazine who, who documented uh, the work of, of people just getting around by bicycle to go to, go to work uh, and then go out to party at night with those bicycles. They were actually working. Uh, the other group I think that is actually really important to me, very, very close to my heart, are the bike messengers. I think that, for me, I learned how to be brave on a bicycle in LA by being a bike messenger. Right? We, we at points, rode bikes with no brakes, uh, fixed gear, 
and there was a, kind of a, a, a warrior element to that. It's not a sustainable one, but it was one that at least helped me feel very grounded uh, to be able to be one of the people up front and not be afraid of cars or car culture. And I really do thank bike messengers in LA, especially in LA, because LA is not a, a, a bike city. LA is not a walk city. LA has been a, a car city for over a century. So to have a culture come out and say, you know what, no, actually this is better, this is more awesome, to me was really wonderful, and I, I, can't, I can't thank them and all the other messengers around the world that I've met who really put themselves on the line, literally, uh, for, for, for bicycles. When we started the LA County Bicycle Coalition, there was a thing called the Bike Expo down at, uh, down at the Convention Center. And it was a very specific culture, uh, in my experience at least. I was one of very few people of color, and it was mostly white men in like REI clothing uh, who had Sierra Club memberships, and they were pushing bicycle advocacy. And that was my experience coming into advocacy, and it wasn't quite gelling for me, because that's not where I come from, that's not what I see as environmentalism, and that's not what actually affected my life. Uh, so it was a very strange place to be, and often when I was young then, coming into those spaces, I was definitely looked down upon. I was not exactly welcomed, uh, as if I had something to contribute. And so it's a funny place to begin advocacy for me, but I stuck it out and I had really wonderful mentors along the way, and through our collective movement, we were able to create spaces like the Bicycle Kitchen that was more street, that was more from the people. Uh, but that for me was the beginning for me of what, what advocacy kind of looked like, and I'm glad that it's so changing to a much, much more inclusive, much more radical, and much more representative way to look at advocacy. And it's not even about bicycles anymore, really. It's about equity, but I'll stop there. So I'll take this question on the pedestrian question, because uh, I, I can't really speak too much on the bicycle movement, but I feel like, again, there's a lot of parallels between pedestrians and bicyclists. So Los Angeles Walks, we've been around for over 25 years now as a pedestrian advocacy nonprofit. And I gotta say, over the 25 years, and, you know, I'm the third executive director, so I wasn't, I wasn't the one to start it. But from the stories I hear, and especially the history of our work, there definitely has been an evolution of how people perceive pedestrians, pedestrian access. And I think more and more things are changing. I think right now there is an existential question. I think a lot of Angelinos are facing: is what is the future of our city? Do we double down on this car-centric, single-family home sort of layout where we're just sprawling out, leading to environmental da dangers? Or do we really rethink ourselves as an urban environment? What does that mean and how does that look like distinctly in Los Angeles? Not New York City, Chicago, but Los Angeles. And for me, I enjoy that question because at the root of it is pedestrianism. Are you able to get somewhere safely, with dignity, with safety, without cost your wallet or your body? Um, and I think it's the same when you speak, uh, talk about bicyclists. And so to answer the question, things are definitely changing. You know, I, I, I live in Koreatown, not five minutes from here. and. It's interesting, I do a lot of door knocking and GeoTV work, and you can go to the most like wealthiest apartments in Cape Town, to the most low-income apartments in Cape Town, and usually they're full of Koreans, but all their cars are black Lexus or Mercedes. Because it's a social status, right? Having a car that's expensive, that looks nice, despite your income is a, a sign of success for a lot of immigrants in Los Angeles. And so decoupling that kind of culture is difficult, but I feel like the younger generations are into that. They're into public transit. I think when it comes to car ownership or even driver's license, the rates have gotten down. Um, and you know, one does not even have to look too far to find good examples. I mean, it's interesting, a lot of Koreans go visit back to Seoul, see amazing public buses, amazing transit systems that come back here and totally just slide right back into the car culture. But again, I, I think things are changing. Uh, Koreatown, just as an example, is a great sort of 
uh, story. You have transit that's running through it. We have the purple line being extended. Bus uh, lines run through K-Town, north, south, east, west. And so, you know, I think it takes communities like this, like the Eco Village, to show that example, to show that vision um, and how we can change cultures and norms. But I think we're doing that. So I, I guess, again, to summarize sort of what I'm saying to answer the question is, I think things are changing. Um, but it takes advocates like us, cultures like this, that sort of exude that kind of, uh, that spirit into the city. And so I'm glad to be here with you all. So hard to follow these two guys. My name is Eli Akira Kaufman. The, I think the problem with bicycle advocacy is somewhat what Jimmy was talking about. It, it, was, it was not uh, a broad enough coalition of different types of people who saw the same issues and challenges and problems in the region. And we weren't connecting ourselves to the larger ecosystem of issues of lack of access to dignified healthcare, work, uh, housing, uh, open space, recreational space, and how transportation is really about the connective tissue of allowing people to have that access. I think what's changed is that there's now a much better coalition of folks who are now working together uh, from different identities, from the pedestrian identity, from the transit rider identity, from the bicycle identity, from the parental identity. And I think that, that that's, that's what I'm seeing as the biggest change in my five years, is that there's this growing, it's not consensus, but this sort of shared understanding that things have got to change in order for this region to become truly what it should be for all people, no matter what your zip code is, no matter what your job is. And that is a place that you can get around without fearing for your life uh, and without, as John said, without losing your, your, your shirt or your money uh, in the process. Part of my learning has been, I was just in Vienna uh, studying their uh, social housing, which is really, I mean, for the, for the people of Eco Village, you are on the bleeding front end of, of, of reimagining what living is in an urban area. In Vienna, uh, housing is a, is a human right. It's decoupled, uh, it's decommodified. It is not a way to generate wealth. It's a way to generate community and health. And they understand that prioritizing uh, more efficient shared living opportunities is how they can get to that place. And so over 60% of the residents of Vienna, which is like kind of a fancy city, it's like, really, this is all subsidized, affordable, sustained housing? It is is because the government and the, and the community has agreed that they're, that they're going to collaborate and work together in a more shared type of a living experience to create those efficiencies and, and cut those costs. And the government has made that investment. And now, if you just saw the rankings, Vienna is ranked as the number one most livable place, not only in Europe, but in the globe. And they're usually in the top five. And I experienced that. And the thing about Vienna that makes it work is the transportation. It's the public transportation, it's the bike infrastructure, it's the pedestrian culture, it's the expectations that drivers have the highest responsibility to the safety of everybody on the street. I've never, I've, at first when I rode a bike in Vienna, it was like people were just blowing through intersections and cars knew it was their responsibility to look out for folks that were on smaller vehicles or on foot. And I was, terrified by seeing how they would just sort of sort of assume that they had the right to be there having ridden in this town for as long as i have with my kids so i guess the point is that i see that there is a possibility for us to have that kind of experience with our families there is an opportunity there, there, there there's a way of getting it done and i think what's happening here in eco village especially when it comes to the connection the intersection between affordable housing and transportation mobility justice 
there's something here that's really magic that we need to learn how learn from and figure out how to scale. And I'll, I guess I'll stop with that. Uh, has anybody here ever read There Are No Accidents? You guys know that book? Yeah. Okay, we got one person. It's a really good read. Everybody should read it, two people. Um, it's, it basically kind of tells the story of how the, the, the things that lead people to get hurt became known as accidents. And the underlying premise in the story is that industrialists lobbied governments to sort of recharacterize um, studies and to pass laws that made it unsafe, or strike that, uh, that, that made it harder to go after the manufacturers of the machines that were actually hurting people. And you know, the obvious one in the room being the car and the truck. And the book sort of talks about how um, car manufacturers lobbied governments at the municipal, the state, federal level to pass laws that restricted the ways in which people could move around their cities. And, you know, of course, this is what led to the creation of the sidewalk and things like jaywalking, just the concept of jaywalking, not the behavior of jaywalking. And, uh, you know, it talks about the first person who was recorded in a motor vehicle uh, death which was a kid in New York City who got run over by a truck. And the crowd circled the truck and took the driver out and beat him. And there was a term in that day called vehicle murder. And it was thought that people who died by motor vehicle were not just killed, they were murdered. So what happened? How did our perception of what streets were and who was allowed to be in them and how they were allowed to move change to the sense that like the you know when you're not in this steel expensive cage you need to be hiding away in some corner of the street and you're not allowed to move freely on the street until some light tells you that it's okay to do so and the obvious answer is industry lobbied the government and that's where we are right now we are at this point where we need to be addressing government. We need to be retaking government. We need to use the levers that government offers us to retake our streets and to make it safer to move about without a car. Um, you know, watch Swingers. It's like this absurd scene where everybody's, one person gets into each car and five cars drive two blocks to get to the next spot. Um, we're all there. I'm, pre I'm preaching to the choir here. Well, it was great to hear all the different voices talk about where the bike movement has come in the last 30 years. You know, there there has been a lot of good work. You know, we're seeing more bike lanes, even if they're not up to standard. We're seeing more infrastructure on the street. And certainly we are talking about it more. It's such an exciting time to be doing this work. As hard as it is, I do feel like there's a little bit of wind at our back. We have a little bit of a tailwind. Yeah. And I think we've taken down all the bad arguments induce demand end of the conversation about whether we can just widen streets we can't um right. every street on the west side is over capacity i think every city in the country is suffering and i highly recommend uh reading paved paradise by henry gravar thank you i first listened to it on the podcast and then right. i read it and it really blew my mind yeah i really think that's a crossover book 
it's not written for advocates. It's written for, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And what about this interview that you both did with yeah, Carl Mahaney? Yeah. Carl Mahaney of Streetopia in New York City and openplans.org. And they are just doing incredible work in New York City on safe streets and mobility. Let's hear that. Open Plans put out a report recently called Getting There, which I guess is, why don't you tell me what it is? So the title um, is, is a little bit of a, a double entendre. Getting there, um, meaning getting to your destination. So one of the things we find in our advocacy on the Upper West Side is that, and throughout the city, is that um, when people use micromobility, they use it because it's efficient and um, it's fun, let's be honest, um, yeah. and it's inexpensive. Um, but they have a really hard time figuring out how to get where they want to go because the infrastructure is incomplete. Um, so everybody has their own hack. They'll use a protected bike lane here. They'll use a street that they know is a little bit, uh, you know, has less traffic a certain time of day over here. And that's how they get there. So so that's one meaning. And the other, um, the other intention with that title is we've been building uh, infrastructure, bicycle infrastructure in New York City now for you know, a, a solid 10 years and 15 years. And we we're getting there, but man, we've got a long way to go. Right, um, right. So how, how do we like get to that next, um, that next level where we increase mode share and it's really safe and convenient for anybody who wants to ride a bike to get there. And before we compare that to the West coast, what were some of the breakdown of some of those numbers? I mean, what did you find in your report getting there? Broadly speaking, we found that the people who responded felt that the bike infrastructure was not sufficient to meet their needs. Right. We found right. a lot of people biking, actually, right. that, at least in respondents, but 95% of them said that they would bike more often if the infrastructure was better right. across all the categories of confidence and all the demographics. And I think that's, that's very telling, um, just as a broad snapshot. And then the second piece of the report, we actually went out onto the street um, and we recruited about 30 volunteers and had them ride every, every block of every marked bike lane on the New York City bicycle map. Wow. And we, we wanted to know what the conditions of the, the lane were, were they, how, how was the surface? How well was it maintained? We wanted to know if it was obstructed. We wanted to know if it was protected, how it felt to them even. Right. Um, and what we found is in the unprotected bike lanes, over 50% of those lanes. So these are painted lines next to sure. door zones. Uh, over 50% of those blocks that were observed were obstructed by vehicles. Over 50%. It was about 12% in protected bike lanes. So one in <laughs> 10 blocks was obstructed by a vehicle. So that's wow. not a complete network. And then we looked at we looked at all of the other, uh, you know, sort of elements of that as well. And Lindsay, how does this jive with what you know about what's going on in Los Angeles and on the West Coast? Yeah, I mean, w what's amazing is that you guys are, New York is so far ahead, right, right. Of, from LA, and yet you're you're coming to the same, it sounds like you're coming to some of the same conclusions, that it's it's infrastructure and safety. And and I, I love what you said, that's like, how does it feel? How does it feel to use? Does it feel scary? Do, do you get an adrenaline rush that you have no interest in getting? Because <laughs> you're just <laughs> trying to go get a cup of coffee with a friend? <laughs> right. Or does it feel good? And I, you know, I think that we're, I think all of us are really, you know, talking about how cities that feel good, you know, how does it right. feel? I think you touched on an important note there because what's an, an adrenaline junkies fix 
on one street is another person's, I'm never going to ride on that street ever again. In fact, I'm going to hang up my, my bike and just go back to my car. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the things we did with our, with our field survey, when we analyzed the data, we, we looked at it through the lens of a vulnerable user. And so, you know, what that means is, is in short, anybody who has a concern for their safety, for whatever reason, maybe they're a kid. So, so they, they need more time to make decisions. They need to, they need lanes that are wide enough that they can maybe ride in a little bit of a wobbly fashion. Older adults, their eyesight might not be as good as, as, um, as others, they might have wider vehicles. Maybe they have a tricycle. So they need a little more space too, and they need to be able to move a little more slowly. So we looked at it through the lens of vulnerable users. And we looked at six different categories of lane, um, of the lanes, uh, with separation, intersections, surface, legibility, and continuity. And then we kind of gave each of those a rating and then determined if these lanes were safe for vulnerable users and spoiler alert, (laughs) they are not, Not, none of the lanes was, was completely safe. Wow. The the closest one was, uh, I think central park West. And that rated about a 50% on our, on our scale of safety. Wow. Lindsay, that's what you always talk about that we're building bike lanes that aren't, aren't really sufficient. Yeah. And and when you dig in with the Dutch, you know, worldwide leaders and study it, they study at a university level, they literally have departments. And it it just always shocks me when you think about that we don't have a single class in America and an American university that teaches bike infrastructure, which is the key to transit, right? You have to unlock bikes to unlock transit. And that's key to climate change. Like we don't study it, but the Dutch do so they can tell us and their standards are so high if there's a car next to you. Carl, Lindsay always asks this question, which I think is great. What speed do you want a car to be going when it hits you or your child? Uh, I zero. Think that's such a great question. <laughs> zero. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it's a really visceral question. I mean, I might I might borrow that in my advocacy, actually. You're an architect by trade. What got you started in open um, plans and becoming an advocate? And, and how are you using some of your training from being an architect in this work? Yeah. I mean, the short answer to that is I had a kid. I mean, and this yeah. is, I, I've talked to so many people where this is the case. Um, I had a kid and what went, what was sort of, um, I don't know, annoying, just kind of background noise, like cars everywhere and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, people running red lights and having a difficult time crossing the street. When you have to to steward a a, a being who is reliant upon you for their safety across the street, Man, it is an entirely different lens. That was one of the uh, like the the key sort of like unintended or unexpected insights in right. in his first years. So I started to to sort of self educate through Twitter, through advocates, and um, found my way to to advocacy. It was about that time that I was also considering a different second half of my professional life. Sure, sure. And I think one of the things that architecture set me up for in this role is I think primarily um, listening and understanding what users need. So as an architect, you can't design a building if you don't know what it's for and you don't know how people are going to use it and what the intent is. I think too often that's missing in our, in transportation planning and street design. Um, And I think we tried to do that in this report. Like what does it, feel like? What is it like? What what are the needs of the people who are using this infrastructure? And are they being met? 
And I think kind of unsurprisingly, if you, you know, spend any time on a bike or, or, or walking around New York City, they're, they're not really being met. They're, the, the emphasis is still, unbelievably in 2023, the emphasis is still on moving vehicles right, through right. dense neighborhoods in Manhattan. What's your goal? I mean, what's, what is the plan of open plans and a streetopia Upper West Side? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll speak for, for, for my initiative that I direct Streetopia Upper West Side. We would like to see an Upper West Side that is, and this, I'll say also that this extends to every neighborhood in the city. Um, but, but this area is my, this neighborhood is my focus. We would like to see an Upper West Side that is, if not car-free, car light. It is, as, I, as we say in the report, it is a neighborhood that is perfectly suited to micromobility. It's two square miles. You can ride north to south in about 15 minutes on a bike. You can ride east to west in under 10 minutes on a bike. Central Park is on the east side. Riverside Park is on the west side. It's a connection between upper Manhattan and midtown and lower Manhattan. It's There's no reason that it should not be a micromobility paradise. So that's one of our goals, just to make it so that anywhere you want to go door to door, you can hop on a bike or walk or take a scooter and get where you need to go without questioning in it and, and right. certainly without fearing for your life. Yeah. Lindsay, this sounds a lot like what you're working on, LCI and and the 15-minute city. I mean, a two-mile radius city is is a is a 15-minute city. Yes. And um I have so many thoughts. I, I think this is so amazing. And I, I actually grew up in New York and I feel like back then it was really safe for children. Well we're we're doing something very similar. We're just adding housing parking free housing to right. uh, low car streets. But I, I guess my question for you, and I'm, I'm so curious is, is, do you feel like there's a tipping point where it gets safe enough and then everybody does it? And, and is there any way to identify that? Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, if I had the answer to that, <laughs> I would, yeah. Um, I don't know what that tipping point is. And I think, I think we're, I think we're, we're, we're both close to it and and very far from it. And and the 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 missing piece there, or the critical piece there, is is political will. I mean, it, it really comes down to that. If if this was prioritized, it would happen much more quickly, and we wouldn't end up with these these kind of half measures that we have. Right. So I don't think we reach that tipping point with through half measures. I don't think the infrastructure we have is going to remotely get us to that point whatever it is. But I think if we removed cars from the street by providing uh, by providing alternate forms of transportation, I mean, New York City has this fabulous subway. The Upper West Side has six subway lines, uh, you know, <laughs> buses galore. There's no reason that we need all of these cars. It also has a, a freeway running past it on the West Side Highway. So I think it, it's easy enough to, to just kind of turn off those those spigots of motor vehicles and and really reduce the number of motor vehicles on the Upper West Side, but it ta it takes courage. It takes it takes political courage to do it, and we we're just not seeing that in the city right now. What kind of pushback are you finding? What what is the NIMBY argument? What uh, what are you up against? Parking, parking. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. it's it's. I mean that that's the it. It's almost always uh, it almost always comes down to parking at least locally, there's always arguments too, like, well, what are you going to do about the people who need to drive? And of course, we all know that 
it will, life will be so much better for those people <laughs> once we remove all of the non-essential vehicle trips. But um, but parking's the big one. There are about 11,000 parking spaces, roughly, on the Upper West Side. Free parking spaces. People still feel entitled to have a place to store their car. A lot of people use the cars to go out of the city on the weekends. So they just sit right. there all week. All week long. Um, yeah. Taking up space, yeah. For free. Yeah. For free. Yeah. We just had Henry Grabar on who wrote Paved Paradise. Yeah. And uh, I think that that his, his subtitle is How Parking Explains the World. And I think it's really apropos. Absolutely. But I think fewer cars is is how we get to that tipping point, um, both stored and moving. And and getting that done, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I wish I did. We talked to Charles Kamenoff last week. How, how do you see yeah. congestion pricing helping this? That that's the that's the big question, right? So the Upper West Side is just above the zone, the congestion zone. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of fear on the Upper West Side. I think unfounded. We'll see. And you know, iteration is the key to designing great things. So if it proves to be true, then then we can iterate with with congestion pricing. But the fear is that people will drive in from wherever. They'll park their car on the Upper West Side in one of the, if they can find a spot, right? And then they'll hop on a train for the next 20, 30 minutes of their trip. I think practically that makes no sense. N nobody's going to, nobody's going to do that. Um, but that's, but that's one of the fears, I think unfounded. What's likely to happen is there will be fewer cars on the Upper West Side as well, even, right. you know, because at 59th or 60th Street, you have to start paying to go into Midtown. And if the projections are right, there's just there's going to be less traffic all over the city and it's a crucial it's it's i think it's a crucial piece in getting us just changing the conversation too right making saying um that we we're we're prioritizing something other than driving driving has a cost and right. and here is you know one manifestation of that cost so right. you did the report with your city councilwoman right yeah we did we did the survey with her yeah um and she was uh, she was very supportive and her team was very supportive in developing the survey and making sure that we reached as many people as we could, both people who use micromobility and who don't, which I appreciated. And she's definitely, um, she engages us on this issue and I think looks to to groups like us to to help lead so that, so that she then has some you know, some political cover to, and some data that she can take. And that's what we hope something like this report will do. It gives her some information that she can then take to her colleagues or take to the Department of Transportation and say, look, this isn't working for my constituents. What are we going to do about it? Can you see a path to success? <sighs> that's, that's my, that's me sighing. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I really believe, and I'm not, you know, I'm, a, I'm relatively new to advocacy. I, I I wouldn't claim to know what that path is exactly, but my instinct tells me that it's leadership, and and it really we see it globally, right? We see Anne Hidalgo in Paris and Valerie Plante in Montreal, and these are female leaders of cities too. Perhaps not a coincidence. Um, right. I th I think I think it really takes prioritizing this issue at the top, yeah. and then that gives the agencies license to do the work. We right. saw it with Jeanette Sadi Khan under Bloomberg. That's when the, all the, you know, the greatest transformation happened, when we really, New York sort of leapfrogged other cities. As advocates, all we can do is keep beating the drum 
and keep providing data and both quantitative and qualitative data, keep telling stories of the people who are affected by these policies. Be ready when that leadership comes right. to seize it. Let's hope Karen Bass is listening to this, right? Because you know she's a she's a female mayor now of a major city. So Lindsay, how do you see some of these programs, either that you're doing in LCI or that Open Plans is doing, how do you see that being replicated across the country? What I find so exciting is is that that there's this national conversation and that you know, you, you guys are just bringing so much, I'm just, you know, so many ideas to the table. And what's so wonderful about the ability for New York to lead is that it's already dense, right? It's not Strode's and suburbia and many, you know, <laughs> Costco parking lots that right. you're contending with. When I try to think of how we're going to get through to people, you know, or, or bring about this change, I, I do think seeing it is so much, feeling it is the next level. You can find uh, find us online at openplans.org and streetopia.city. Carl Mahaney, thanks for all the work you do and thanks for being on Bike Talk. Lindsay, anything? Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Taylor. Thanks, Lindsay. Lindsay, you said you were born in New York, right? Or, or raised in New York? I was. I, I grew up in a very different New York with very slow cars. You had the run of the city as a kid. You had parks and playgrounds. It really, it worked. Yeah. I lived in New York in the late 80s and early 90s, and, and it was the Wild West if you were riding your bike. So it's really nice to see some of these uh, changes happening, whether it started with Jeanette Sadek Khan and, and being continued with Carl Mahaney and Open Plans and all the people at uh, the War on Cars. So I think New York is a real leader. I grew up there too. I, I also did not drive. Of course, I was uh, a kid. Where did you grow up, Nick? I grew up in Manhattan on the Upper West Side and then uh, Western Massachusetts. And Taylor was in a movie about the Upper West Side. Upper East Side. Were you in oh, Metropolitan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> you didn't I know that? Go watch it. <laughs> the movie holds up, I, I might say, 30 years later. Um, but on that note, next up, we have we have Don Ward. Uh, Don's back on the show, and he's talking with Jared Sanchez of CalBike about e-bike rebates. And this is important because e-bikes are a game changer. E-bike gets you seven miles in 15 minutes. Bikes get you, I think, three miles in 15 minutes. And walking gets you three quarters of a mile in 15 minutes. But seven miles is enormous because it's a circle. So it really opens up people's worlds. It's really important. And it's not just for California. We want to make sure that there are e-bike rebates everywhere across the country. Yeah. Let's hear about what is going on in California. Great. Well, let's hear Don. And Jared Sanchez. Welcome to Bike Talk. Today we have Jared Sanchez, Policy Director with CalBike.org, the state advocacy org for California. Welcome to the show, Jared. We want to talk today about the e-bike rebate program. So it's frustrating. California will spend tens of millions of dollars subsidizing electric vehicles and rebates on vehicles, and the feds will do it. There's all kinds of money for that. But the solution in our minds is smaller vehicles and particularly e-bikes because they take a whole lot less energy to power and a whole lot less energy to manufacture and they'd be a better solution. But for some reason, the state has been lagging on that, but you guys have made some progress on this. Yeah, sure. So just a couple of years ago, 
state legislators and ourselves and other advocates were able to carve out a portion of those funds that are going to incentives for motor vehicles. Usually, like you mentioned, I think in one year, the state spends almost $600 million around electric vehicle, that's car incentives. And just again, a couple of years ago, we were able to get a carve out about $10 million for a pilot electric bicycle incentive program, which the California Air Resources Board was tasked for being responsible to manage and oversee and implement the program, which is now officially called the Electric Bike Incentive Program. And this happened all in 2021. So two years later, <laughs> we're finally getting a program in shape or the Air Resources Board and the administrator that they've chosen through a selection process called Ride Safely based out of San Diego. We'll be starting off the program this year. So it's, it's taken a couple of years to get here, but $10 million minus some administrator fees. So around $7 million will be going to vouchers, cash incentives for everyday folk Californians meeting certain income restrictions and requirements. We'll be getting vouchers up to, I think, $2,000. And after some initial assessment of how the launch goes, ramp it to a full launch. We've been navigating this program for almost a decade trying to get that carve out for funds for e-bikes. And there's a lot of progress happening across the country, as you mentioned, and locally as well here in California. This will be the first statewide incentive program. And we're excited to have it take off and hopefully continue for our future years as this is just a pilot for the first round and hopefully to get more funds in the future so we can get more incentives and more cash to folks needing to buy an e-bike. So that's a quick summary of it. Take us through the process of getting that rebate. You said it's up to $1,500, so I'm imagining that it's based on the retail value of the bike. Tell us a little more about how to apply and how that process works. So I mentioned that it is an income-qualified program, so it's 300% of federal poverty level and below. I can't remember the number, but it was around 50000 per year annually for a person to qualify. For this first round, you need to be considered low-income by the state of California to receive a voucher. We're not totally sure about how the application process is working. As I mentioned, it's been a work in progress in terms of how easily they can set up this application process, the administrator and their resources board. But that's what the soft launch is for at this point to really target a few communities that they've been working with and to fine tune how the application process will be working by the end of the year for folks to fully apply themselves. We're hoping and we've been advocating to make it as easy as possible there will be some e-bike education and training materials that applicants will need to go through in order to receive a voucher, including some research on the applicant's part in terms of what kind of e-bike they want and where they will want to purchase it before they're able to get a voucher. My understanding is that vouchers will be at point of sale, so they'll be sent a check before a consumer can either go to a store to purchase an e-bike or buy one online. I think there's some restrictions about where and what you can buy online, um, but this voucher ranges from, I think, as low as 750 up to almost 2000 depending on what type of bike you want to get. So if you're getting a cargo bike or an adapted bike for disabled users, you would get more of a voucher. I have to get back to you on specifics about what these dollar amounts are, especially if you are very low income and below a certain threshold or live in a high poverty community, you get a boost of about $750 per applicant for a voucher as well. So I guess I mentioned it can qualify, but you also get more the less income you have. Okay. Those are the basics of it at this point. 
You mentioned that it's going to be piloted in certain communities. Do you have an idea of what communities they're going to be piloted in? Yeah, so they're based on pre-existing relationships that the Air Resources Board and the administrator have in these communities. So I know the Bayview neighborhood in San Francisco was one of them. I believe downtown Fresno or community related to the downtown Fresno is chosen. I think City Heights in San Diego is going to be piloted there. And one other, I'm not remembering, but it was in a maybe a more suburban area. They wanted to make sure they had some diverse geographic areas that they wanted to pilot in. And I think they're going to give about 100 to 200 vouchers within these select communities. And yeah, see how it goes. They take up rates, process, concerns, questions, just figured out before they get the full launch on. Unfortunately, no Los Angeles communities, huh? Yeah, I don't remember them talking about the Los Angeles community, but I need to get back to you on that. The okay. administrator is based in San Diego, so they have a lot of expertise there. But yeah, I don't mm-hmm. recall a Los Angeles community being the pilot or in the okay. soft launch, that is. Do you know when the soft launch phase is, what, for the rest of the year or? I think an applicant will have 90 days to use the voucher. So we're told starting at the end of this month, so that will be going through almost December, it seems like. I imagine they're going to have to assess how it went. We're hopeful the full launch will be at the end of the year. I'm assuming that's going to be around December time. There already have been delays, like I mentioned, for a couple of years now. So we're crossing our fingers on that. There's nothing stopping them that they couldn't push it to 2024, which is unfortunate, but this is the first of its kind. It's a big program. It's a decent amount of money and a lot of stuff to pay attention to. And they want to make sure to get it right the first time around. So making sure that we have everything go well to get future funding and yeah, more money out there next time. Any idea of what their concerns are, what they're worried about happening that might go wrong? We haven't heard much on their end. We have voiced our own concerns that the administrator and the ARB have been very open to hearing and taking in our recommendations. The one big concern we had was a mandatory educational requirement that all applicants have to go through in order to receive a voucher. We're all for education. We're not for compel or mandatory education in any way, especially when the subsidies are going to low-income riders. There are equity concerns around that. For example, a wealthy resident could go in an e-bike shop and purchase an e-bike without having to go through education requirements, but having to mandate that for low-income riders in this program was something we were advocating against. I don't think we've been successful in that, and there's still going to be an education component that's mandatory, but we do think that may slow up the process in some ways, depending on how easy it is, depending on it's accessible to folks' home language. I think there's concerns about how that will go. I think the other big concerns were there was a 30-day limit about when people will be able to purchase a bike with their voucher. We were able to ask them to expand that to 90 days. I think there still may be concerns because this voucher may, in some cases, cover the cost of a new bike, but many cases will not. So these are low-income residents, so they'll need to find extra cash. They're not able to purchase an e-bike if the voucher isn't enough or doesn't cover the cost for them. So that can definitely slow the progress as well. And I think another big one is that this is just a first of its kind. E-bikes are relatively new on the scene. We're curious to see how quickly folks will be taking up this, how interested they will be. 
data shows that this program has been very successful across the country and locally here in California. There's definitely been more demand than what's actually available. Some programs are not limited to certain income classifications. So we're curious about if this group in particular will have any difficulty going through the process. And yeah, we'll also see how the final delivery of the vouchers are as well. We weren't told about how exactly whether it's being mailed or if there's going to be a virtual credit card or how that process will actually work to get the applicant the voucher. But they've been working it out for the past couple of years and hopefully we'll have it squared away in this pilot. But we'll see. I think it's a good idea that they're doing this soft launch just to make sure that I iron out the kinks before they go full launch on this. And yeah, we look, we look forward to seeing where it goes. Yeah, it sounds very promising. Thanks guys for all your work on that at CalBike. Yeah. You guys are the ones that are leading this, right? Yeah, the main advocates, we've been partnering with Coalition for Clean Air lately. They've been very excited to learn more about how to support e-bikes, especially in center program. We've also been working with the California legislature to get more money in next year's budget, which will be passing the next few days here. We've been trying to meet with legislators to get more money, asking for $50 million, so a raise of $40 million in next year's budget, given all the deficits in the budget and all the concern. Don't know how likely it is this year. Also, there's some concern that since the program hasn't launched yet, we don't know how much money the program needs and what the data looks like in terms of how successful the program is and giving it more money might be premature at this point. So yeah, we're the main advocates at the state level, along with a couple other partners, but we've been working alongside a lot of the local coalitions who have overseen local programs or are very involved locally in their own kind of e-bike incentive programs, including San Gabriel Valley Group, Bike LA, San Francisco Bike Coalition, East Bay Bike, and a couple others across the state who've been pretty involved in e-bike education or other incentive programs that have been happening locally. Well, thank yeah. you for taking time to explain yeah. the program to us. Thank you. That was Don Ward and Jared Sanchez talking about e-bikes. It's so funny when people think they're so elitist and then you compare it to the cost of a car. Yeah. It's a it's fraction. Awesome. It's a fraction. I guess I just never thought of it. You don't need insurance for an e-bike. Or gas. Or, <laughs> exactly. Somebody once tweeted, I don't know if this is true, that you can charge your e-bike for $12 a year. <laughs> wow. Well, it was a really good show. And uh, Nick, I'm so glad you were able to be out on the West Coast for the forum. Great that congestion pricing is moving forward in New York. Great that people are coming together to make our streets safe. Be safe out there. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week.